Hello and welcome to another edition of Hippo Brain. Here is where we have hippo-sized conversations with people with hippo-sized brains. It's amazing that we get all these crazy, beautiful hippo-sized brains, guys, on on our uh, show, and we have these varied list of conversations with them. Today, I'm extremely excited because till some time back, I didn't really know that there is something called somebody who covers the political economy of the country, and. I did have a chance to go through some of the books that he's written. He's a prolific author. And I can only tell you one thing. I'm looking forward to this conversation. It will hopefully shed a lot of answers and a lot of light into some of the questions that I have about what. Rajesh, over to you to explain a little bit more about our guest for the show. Thank you, Jamit. Our guest today is Shankar Ayer. Welcome to Hippo Brain Shankar. Thank you, Rajesh. Pleasure. So I've known Shankar for many years, and every conversation with him is a veritable delight. Uh, if you've not read, please Google him. He writes regularly uh, in the New Indian Express, and pay special attention to the titles of his columns. Uh, Bloomberg Quint, very well-researched uh, articles, full of numbers and very methodically argued points. But today, what we are going to do? is focus on the three books that Shankar has written. And in a way, they tell the story of India. The first book, Accidental India, basically talks about how India uh, changes or the reforms that happens in India, essentially only in a crisis. So we'll cover that first. Then the second one is about the one of the biggest tech uh, revolutions in India, Aadhaar. Uh, Shankar's book, second book, really goes into uh, the full Aadhaar story. And the third book, which came out this year, you can also see at the back there, The Gated Republic, talks about how, in a way, taking the story further, how governments in India have basically failed to create the public solutions, the public infrastructure in multiple areas, whether it's education, health, water, security, etc. So why has that happened? And what can we look forward uh, ahead? And finally, we'll spend a little time uh, towards the end talking on what Shankar's ideas are on the next economy. So that's a great sort of uh, a conversation, I think, to look forward to. Uh, uh, Shankar's background, of course, has been um, amazing. Uh, by the way, for people who will not remember, and something which happened 30 years ago, Shankar broke the story in 1991 about uh, RBI uh, pledging gold uh, uh, to essentially save the Indian economy. And that really kickstarted the era of uh, Indian liberalization. That's our guest today, Shankar. So Shankar, uh, let's start with, with the first book, Accidental India. Uh, I think the core premise really is around crisis leads to change. Why is that so in India? So this question I had when I uh, broke the story of RBI pledging its gold reserves for a mere $400 million. I mean, that's all we needed th at that time. And we had just a week's uh, foreign exchange reserves uh, in the system. So uh, when I saw the gold trunk, the RBI trunks being loaded into the cargo aircraft and all this question was in my head that, I mean, is this the best that a country can do? I mean, why does it have to wait till this? It's like... Uh, you know, uh, even families do better in terms of, you know, so 
or a period of writing on the political economy. In, in, so for some, re for, for some reason or the other, my focus, uh, I shifted cities, uh, I shifted publications, uh, and, uh, but my focus stayed on one thing as to how politics affects the economics of people. So this was my area of interest. In fact, uh, people who live in Mumbai may remember about 35 years or 34 years back, <clears throat> I wrote a cover story in one of the city magazines on what happens to every rupee that people pay the Bombay Municipal Corporation. And 63 paisa out of rupee was being spent on themselves. And that was my kind of interest. I was 25 years old and I sort of went into the nards of the BMC to see over a period of time. How so uh, to come back to why the crisis thing, this, this kept haunting me in, in a sense. And uh, every time I wrote about power reforms or financial sector reforms, you found that um, change always came only in the wake of a crisis. So uh, sometime in 2010 or 11, I decided that uh, it also hit me that uh, this was 2011, you know, when the policy paralysis and all the UPA drama was going on. So it also struck me that, and this is another of my maxims, which is for things to get better, they must get worse. That is the Indian uh, baseline. So I said, okay, let's look at this. Why does this happen? And uh, I sort of went through the different transformative moments. And to me, the seven big changes, all of them came at the intersection of politics and economics. I mean, they might have driven, been driven by politics, uh, but they were economic. For instance, bank nationalization. Uh, so India always had a challenge of putting together this. I mean, what is the challenge before any uh, system is to get all the savings of all the people and redeploy them for at different rates of returns, across domains, depending on risk profiles, whether government, private, whatever, for economic growth. So that was not happening and it's still a challenge actually. I mean, I don't think India's banks have, have successfully harnessed what are the saving, the, the level of saving in the uh, system. Uh, and you still have a large part of the cash economy because of various reasons of access, affordability, trust, and all those issues. So if you look at the seven changes, uh, I mean, we spoke about liberalization. I mean, the reason the RBI had to pledge its gold reserves was because when Chandrasekhar was prime minister in, Jan uh, in January, India went and sought a bailout from IMF. The IMF board said, okay, this is what is required, but what is India doing? What's its equity in the game? What, how does it, does, does it have skin in the game? Because you go on doing license Raj and all those stuff. So, uh, so a lot of people think that Manmohan Singh was the author of the reforms, which is not true. The real author, there are two people uh, I would credit. Uh, first, the process of uh, enabling reforms, I give full credit to P.V. Narsimharao. Uh, so when we say that license Raj was dismantled, there's a very interesting story behind that. So Amarnath Verma and Rakesh Mohan, Dr. Rakesh Mohan is 
uh, now teaching at Yale, he used to be deputy governor and the finance minister, you know. And Amarnath Verma, principal secretary to prime minister. So Amarnath Verma was in the industries minister uh, ministry when VP Singh was uh, industry secretary when VP Singh was prime minister. And Amarnath Verma and Rakesh Mohan put together a note on what needs to be done for in making Indian industry more efficient, more uh, productive. And so the theory that India's license Raj had been has was failing and will fail had been proved as early in the late 60s by Rajaji. There is a very famous uh, manifesto of the Swaraj party, which says a lot of these issues, which brings out uh, the issues that were holding back India. I mean, Swatantra party. Holding, Swatantra party uh, manifesto, yeah. manifesto. And holding back is saying, putting it mildly, in the 70s, Malawi was growing faster than India. So, so the, Amanath Verma and Rakesh Mohan put together this model industrial, uh, new industrial policy paper. And Ajit Singh, who had just come back from IBM at that time, was the industries minister in VP Singh's government. So he was interested in doing these things. And so he presented this idea to VP Singh. And it didn't even reach the parliament. I mean, you know, it got scuttled just right there. And you must remember, VP Singh was supported on the left by the left parties, on the right by BJP. Neither of the parties were had any credentials of any reforms. I mean, the BJP had been opposing GATT and uh, you know um, uh, the Uruguay round forever. And uh, the left parties, we know, I mean, their policy on you know anything that is not owned or controlled by government is an anathema to them. So that the paper never went anywhere. But in January 1991, when we went and met the IMF board, when they asked, what do you have to show us? They produced this junked paper as a, a testimony of intent that this will be our new industrial policy. And then the IMF cleared the money. And then when Narasimharao became prime minister, uh, Naresh Chandra, who was the cabinet secretary, gave him three pieces of document. One is the bailout agreement with IMF. Second was this uh, liberalization uh, of the industrial sector. And third, exactly where we stood on foreign exchange reserves and what needed to be done. Uh, so Mr. Rao, when he was uh, anointed as the prime minister, his bedside, read, his bedside reading on day one was all these three crisis papers. And then he propelled it. And so it, it was the same thing happened in uh, bank nationalization. You know, uh, the Congress party was about to split. So Mrs. Gandhi leveraged uh, bank nationalization to prove herself to be more socialist, more pro-poor than the other faction of the Congress. So you look at, um, we are also proud about the milk uh, revolution and Amul and everything, but uh, Vergis Kurian struggled for over 20 years, 25 years actually, before uh, the country paid attention to what needed to be done. And that revolution, the formation of the National Dairy Development Board and the National Milk Grid again came uh, in the wake of a crisis. If you look at the software revolution, now if you go and land in any country uh, in the world, 
the immigration guys assume that you're a techie like you rajesh so uh, and they sort of make this gesture you know with the keyboard gesture that they do uh, and this wouldn't have happened again if uh, we didn't have the foreign exchange crisis and one man nagraj bittal who was the electronic secretary produced a model that worked for tech companies similarly the right to information again came as uh, an accident so the idea behind accidental india was that all these transformations came in the wake of crisis and india's migration from abject penury which is poverty to uh, potential of prosperity uh, was serendipitous and therefore accidental india and uh, so it, to me even today the story continues i mean you know uh, as soon as covid happened a lot of people wrote to me uh, particularly on social media saying okay so what's the next accident you know and uh, so we have seen some of that stuff happening if you see the new labor code movement towards uh, freeing of the farm markets these are riding again on crisis and uh, we can talk about more i mean you know why that farm reforms thing is critical at this juncture or why easing of fdi is critical at this juncture so shankar um when i when i hear you and i understand what you're saying so obviously a politician's good old adage goes that never waste a good crisis and uh, it probably i just want to understand in your opinion is it that we all know about what needs to get done and politicians also know what needs to get done it's only that uh, uh we've had different hippo brains on the conversation who explained to us that every time you take a certain step there are counter forces that get affected and they come and block and say hey but what about this but what about this like uh, akilesh was one of our, uh, who's uh, the usd for the aviation ministry was explaining that a simple rerouting of certain planes has a ripple effect of somebody getting affected so time is your best friend and crisis allows a politician to break through all the criticism and do what he actually thinks is right so there are two ways to look at it one politicians are sitting on their butt not knowing what happens and crisis hits them on the face and suddenly they want to do something or is it in your opinion that they know what is happening but the time and given the nature of the political climate it only happens when the winds are all blowing in certain direction one obviously gives them more credit and one takes away what is your opinion of that so let's let's separate the two parts to this i think politicians are far smarter than people give them credit for i mean you don't want to deal with 10 million voters and representative deal deal with 24 hour day schedules unless you're smart and you have some game plan so politicians are way smarter than most people okay it may not be now one cannot compare a particular politician with a particular smart set guy but politicians are smart about their interests so the way to look at this is political politicians are entrepreneurs they are entrepreneurs who are investing their effort their political capital for electoral dividends so once you have the that alignment in here then you see you can assess a lot of the stuff that happens uh so 
the politician, when a crisis happens, decides also to whether to go left or right. I mean, you know, whether to, I mean, you know, there are ways to deal with a crisis. So the, the change that they push depends on the documentation that is already existing. So all these issues are being discussed in government. It's not, nothing that's happening in India is unknown. None, none of the solutions are unknown. So I always say this when I speak abroad, they say, oh, but crisis uh, propels change everywhere else. So what's unique about India? So I said, the thing that's unique about India is that we have the unique ability to si stare simultaneously at the problem and the solution and wait for the crisis. This is our speciality. We just wait for it. So what does a crisis do? Crisis wrenches away choice. It takes away choice. And so the politician gets to leverage crisis as a no option circumstance and then do the change that he wants to do or she wants to do. Crisis also brings into the people's mind this whole aspect that something needs to be done. We can't go on like that. Business for issue, nature, like you know? So, and we have globalized the phrase chalta hai. So, you know, whenever we have a crisis that uh, phrase chalta hai becomes, it gets demonetized, you know? So we, we, we have to push for some action. And I think uh, the smarter politicians know what needs to be done and they try and time it uh, to do something. I think your point is very right that, uh, it's very rare that a politician doesn't know. I mean, there are unknown unknowns, okay. Now, if you look at, uh, and we can speak about this in great detail, but it's not that it was unknown to India states and go state government and the central government that we had a pretty ruined healthcare system. When, I mean, we didn't need COVID to tell us that, but COVID sort of amplified the lack of uh, healthcare system the number of beds, doctors, and staff. Still, it is to credit to India's ingenuity uh, that we are able to deal with episodes, episodes. So I always say that India does very well in episodic crisis. You know, we do very well in launching a satellite, Mars mission, we do very well in uh, Kumbh Mela and stuff. And, um, I mean, I'll come back to this when we talk about the third book, but I mean, I have this theory that India is a live miracle in operation. So, Shankar, one example of something significant which got done without a crisis is, your, is the story in your second book, which is Aadhaar. Aadhaar is an example of someone proactively uh, envisioning a new future and going and making it happen. How did that go? How did that come about? So there are three aspects to India's public policy. One, change happens in the wake of a crisis. Some ch sometimes change can happen without a crisis, which is Aadhaar. And there are situations where despite crisis, change doesn't happen. So if you look at Aadhaar, I mean, it was very apparent 
so India had two different issues. One, to aggregate the savings, to deliver public services. And people were not opening accounts. We had like an unbanked population, which was 40% of total population. So the other aspect, we were delivering welfare without knowing whether it was reaching the person it was meant to reach. So, I mean, you know, uh, we have the world's largest national uh, food security act, the food security program, the world's largest midday meal scheme, the world's largest uh, children, uh, the child development scheme. And these have been there for like 10, 15, 25 years. I mean, ICDS, the Integrated Child Development Service, has been there from the 70s. We still have the largest amount of malnutrition, stunting, and everything. And there's one about the scale and the other about the delivery mechanism, whether it's reaching, not reaching. So these, these monies were not reaching. And this was a concern that was there during Atal Bihari Vajpayee's government. It was also a concern that was brought up by the left parties. The CPM actually said that, you know, it's not, so the, when the UPA was formed, it's outside support, the party which backed it with 60 plus seats was the Communist Party Marxist. So there, one of the conditions was that we want welfare to be expanded, we want welfare to be delivered. And this was there in Manmohan Singh's mind for some time. So there were, so that typically in government to assuage an ally, you form a committee of secretaries. Then the committee of secretaries forms a core committee and the core committee goes into uh, And the initially the committee was headed by Arvin Virmani who put together some paper and nothing more and you know, there were issues. So India always had three issues. One, it didn't have an, any concept of what a national identity is. So even today, you cannot define citizenship. There are cases in Supreme Court and High Court which, where a judge has said that even possession of a passport is not necessarily an every, uh, proof of your being a citizen. So that's one. So national identity card was a project which started in 2000 and never went, got anywhere because it, it came after the Cargill episode and uh, the parliament attacks that we needed one. Uh, and this is an issue that a lot of countries struggle with, not just India, defining citizenship. Uh, if people who follow uh, the Trump circus would have noticed that a few days back, he said that people who were not even American, they couldn't prove citizenship, they were voting. Okay. And a few days back, there was a government official in Bihar who complained that people from Nepal were carrying Aadhaar cards and this was a security risk. Neither of them... I mean, nobody has yet figured out what Aadhaar is. They all, I mean, so because we didn't have a national identity card, everybody thinks Aadhaar. So what's Aadhaar? Aadhaar gave a person who lives in India, not necessarily a citizen, not necessarily a voter, not a document to validate that he is who he says he is, or she is who she says he is. Now, what that document did was that it, it opened up the doors to access services. And this project, I must say, could never have happened without serendipity that brought Ram Sevak Sharma, who was an IS officer with a very interesting background, and Nandan Nilekani, who at times I tell him that he passes through a messiah complex every now and then. He wants to do things. So 
Nandan in 2000-2008 had written a book, Imagine India, and one of the things that he had written about was this issue of identity to access services. You know. So in 2009, Manmohan Singh uh, was informed by Rahul Gandhi that he wanted Nandan Nilakani in the government and he wanted Nandan as the Human Resource Development Minister. Now, HRD previously was held by Arjun Singh. There was no way the Congress party was going to yield that heavy a post for somebody who was coming from outside politics. And as usual, the pushback was there and Nandan was asked to fly to Delhi for a swearing in, booked a plane, but then was told that, you know, okay, wait, things have not happened as yet. And in the next few days, he met Manmohan Singh and Manmohan Singh offered him a membership in the planning commission, which was, I mean, you know, you could do a lot of things if you were N.K. Singh, but, uh, you know, you could just be a member of the Rotary Club if you were not smart about it. So he said, no, I'm going, I want to do something. So there was this project, uh, the group of ministers headed by Pranam Mukherjee had cleared this uh, idea of an identity card for accessing services. So how do we implement this project? And I don't think, I mean, this is how this got implemented at the lowest cost, these structures that were, I mean, so government of India didn't do anything. I mean, they didn't say we will print the cards, we will do the things. They created a network like an Amul network, you know, of private participants who did the work and they registered and all. And it went through all kinds of opposition, all kinds of drama. And so for me, it was uh, fascinating to write as to how two different political parties, the Congress and the BJP, come to realize that this is a godsend that we needed Aadhaar. And the politics behind it, the, the, it was opposed from within the Congress and the BJP campaigned against it in the election. You know, Prime Minister Modi called it a gimmick and stuff. And then, I mean, I have this thing about politics, you know, uh, where you stand depends on where you sit. So once you are in the treasury benches, where once you're in the ruling party, you can, you are for reforms, you propose every reform. But once you are in the opposition, once you are in the opposition, you go and oppose the very same reforms that you have proposed. I'm still waiting. I mean, Rajesh, this is my dream that a party in power proposes a particular reform, then gets voted out. Then once in opposition, they oppose the very reform they had passed. I'm just waiting for that to happen. I mean, <laughs> you know, that, I mean, you know, I you pass a law and then you come out in opposition. And I mean, uh, Sukhbir Singh Badal and the Akhalidals have come close to that in the farm uh, reforms mm -hmm. thing. You know, they they signed off on the ordinance to reform the laws. They were part of the cabinet which took the decision and they came out and said, oh, we opposed it. So I don't know how do you do that, but so it's a brilliant private-public uh, partnership. <coughs> and I must say, the personalities of Ram Sevak Sharma and Nandan Nilekani were in perfect sync for executing this project. I don't, I mean, world, this project has been studied the world over. Uh, people in the World Bank, people in uh, UN, everywhere, this is an idea that has been adopted and now uh, India Stack and Nandan's, uh, which is Nandan's uh, 
initiative, public uh, philanthropic initiative, has put together an open source thing that countries will. And look at this. We have Aadhaar. And so when the vaccines come tomorrow, we have no concern on how we'll deliver it because we have a digital intelligent network now. So, you know, the, so we always, I mean, India is one of the biggest vaccine producers and vaccine users for polio and other stuff. So we always had a vaccine intelligence network. So what uh, Dr. Harshwardhan was the health minister then the government came together. And again, Ram Sevak Sharma went and made the presentation. Government consulted Nanda Nilekani. And so the, the, the uh, vaccine distribution and allocation program is also uh, had a, both of these people had a role in that. So what did they do? They said that we will expand this vaccine intelligence network. Uh, so the government knows where the vaccine has come from, where it is stored, where it is being sent, which is the doctor who's giving it, who is the person who receives it. And the person who receives it gets locked on Aadhaar. So you know this person is caught. And so there is a validation, a certification method, everything. And I can say this, and it might sound kind of uh, futuristic, but there will be a time when almost every country, given the state of cybersecurity and the issues that are happening, will go and opt for a biometric uh, identity system and this this is going to be so yesterday and day before uh, there was a hack which you people know no gmail went down government departments in the us went down so this morning and this is why i got a little bit late because i was tracking that what what actually happened and apparently and this is the allegation that russian hackers or hackers in russia however you describe this tapped into a solar wind farm, solar and wind farm distribution point and hacked into the US system. They entered the defense uh, department, they entered the health department, they entered uh, two other critical departments with the US government has not named. A few days earlier, hackers had entered the Pfizer server on their clinical trial data. So this is so there is one that is at the commercial level, the cybersecurity issues. The second is personal identity issues. Every year, uh, so countries will need to find ways to distribute relief and identify that and identification of who should get that relief will require uh, um, identity systems. I think Aadhaar, and when I gave the title of the book, a biometric history of India's 12-digit revolution. <clears throat> My publishers asked me, uh, how are you so confident that it will be a revolution? I said, if it isn't, it will be a complete dud. But I am very confident that it will be a revolution. And it, we just have to work this through. We have to be smart about it. We should... Uh, the, and so all the pieces have fallen through. So there we have a privacy judgment, but we don't have a data protection law as yet, which is necessary uh, for uh, any digital initiative. Similarly, we can now use it. I mean, imagine, you know, in the, in the earlier days, if you went to buy, uh, get a telephone connection, you would wait three days, call up, uh, whether you've been identified, validated, blah, 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 all that. Then you went to open a bank account, you carried 10 things. And, now, this one piece of document allows you to do all of those things, and there is so much trust built around it. 
So, uh, Shankar, uh, what you're saying is very interesting in, in sense of uh, all of this is extremely necessary, but probably also on the other side, you're raising safeguard issues, et cetera, and data privacy and data regulation. I think uh, while there are um, many, many numerous benefits of other, some of the criticism that I don't know if you can address very shortly before we move on to your third book is that uh, if giving too much power to the central authority in terms of Aadhaar may give rise to an Orwellian kind of system where the big brother knows a lot about us, where governments would want us to take various different services on the Aadhaar uh, network. Uh, does it raise fears, A, of uh, a, a big brother overarching, knowing everything and for everything being a single source of identity? And second, uh, in terms of the identity fundamentally being allowed to um, fall into wrong places if one were to assume that the hackers were omnipresent at all points of time. But you see, I'm glad you asked this question about the privacy and security of the issues because this is uh, the epilogue of my book, which was written before the Supreme Court judgment argued strenuously uh, for the need for data protection and a law of pri on privacy. So the Supreme Court has given us the constitutional right to privacy and has uh, government has committed to putting together data protection law. Now, that's necessary. And I want to sort of make this point. The government doesn't really need Aadhaar to spy on you. There are seven, eight different laws. I mean, you know, the state, no matter which country you are, is omnipowerful. It is omnipotent. There's no doubt about it. Okay, so it's not going to. So, it, I mean, you know, the IT Act itself has enough. I mean, your people post all kinds of stuff on social media, including the children. I mean, I'm always struck by people who post infants and children's pictures on social media. Uh, I don't know what their privacy uh, consent form says, but so we share a lot of stuff in public. You know, Indians are more uh, sort of ready to part with information which is not asked for than anybody else. So the concerns were whether the encryption technology that was used, the biometric, you know, because that's the only identity you have. If the biometric is lost, then what is? So secondary, third, tertiary, new identity systems could be created. So we followed fingerprint with retina. Now I'm told there are new other ways to do, do uh, identify a, a person. So yes, I worry about uh, the power of the state to survey you, not exactly target you. If they want to, so rightly it was resisted that, you know, connecting all the pieces would have given the state too much power. Uh, and so the privacy judgment of the Supreme Court sort of puts constraints on this. There are a lot of restraints have been placed. The thing is that how good a system is depends on us, on citizens to push back, to ask, to argue, to reach out to the MPs, to write letters. And this is something that happened in the run-up to the Aadhaar thing. And I'm very glad that it had a robust resistance and all some of the charges that were made were, I mean, you know, even today, which are being made, it's people don't understand. The, for instance, there is this people crossing over from Nepal border were found in Bihar and they found 
citizens of Nepal uh, carrying Aadhaar card. So I, a, I don't know how do you identify citizens of Nepal if they're carrying Aadhaar card. Whether, I mean, Nepal has the same question about citizenship, how to define citizenship that India has. So anyway, so the Aadhaar card does not bestow citizenship. Aadhaar card does not bestow you uh, right to vote. Aadhaar card does not bestow anything. It is only an identity card. So all of us Indians who work abroad, acquire uh, a social security number, does that make us citizens? We acquire driver's licenses. Does that make us a So there is a misconception, which probably was political as if this card made you an Indian and not. So that misconception has stayed. Uh, and so it is much more uh, critical to get these issues sorted. So the funny thing is the government uses Aadhaar whenever it hits a roadblock. So if you notice, if you want to apply for a passport or a voting card of the three things out of six that you need to pr uh, present, one is Aadhaar. The Supreme Court said that it should not be used for commercial purposes. So it was given as an option. How many people do you know who don't give their Aadhaar as to get a SIM card or a bank account? It's the easiest, most functional, so people do it. Now, there are countries in the world where your, your digital footprint is completely with the government. Okay, there are good examples and there are bad examples. So China, is the one that you worry about. You should worry about how China monitors and surveys uh, its citizens. Estonia, it's a completely just digital system. It is a former Soviet bloc country, but they've done it brilliantly. They vote electronically, they vote in remote. Everything is possible there. And that is possible because every time the government of Estonia touches their personal identity, it has to flash to them. It, it is told they have rules, they have uh, norms of declaration, purpose declaration, need declaration. So it's interesting. I mean, you know how, where we are going uh, is interesting. I mean, I remember going to Tokyo about 12 years back and most Japanese people were just waving their phone biometric uh, barcode uh, at the train station to get the train or at the airport. Nobody was using a physical uh, ticket. So th that involves some amount of loss of privacy, I guess. Absolutely right, uh, Shankar. And I think with new technologies like facial recognition, et cetera, coming in the next couple of years, I think we have a whole new world. I know, you know, Rajesh, in London, there is no place that is not covered by a CCTV in the city of London. It has probably the largest number of television cameras outside of Beijing in Shanghai. Fascinating. So brave new world, we are already there. And I want to move to your third book. Okay, so uh, The Gated Republic, uh, which came out this year. And it sort of takes the story forward in a, in a very different way. And what you're covering really here is that India, if it has to become a $5 trillion economy, it can't do so if because of the sort of failures of the state in a way, in very core things, education, uh, health, water, power, security, you've covered these five themes. 
uh, in the book where people are basically being forced to opt in or forced to resort to private solutions. So the failure of public policy uh, results in private solutions. And I have fascinating stories uh, through the book. So what does this tell us about the Indian state? So on one side, we've got something as complex and as sort of uh, uh, powerful uh, as Aadhaar, which is done. And yet some of the basic necessities of life, 75 years after independence, we are still not able to provide to a large percentage of uh, the population. So I, I mean, this was a question that struck me as to why we can't get it right and what is the issue. And so, as I said, accidental India proved that change comes with crisis. Aadhaar proved that change can come without crisis. And Gated Republic proves that even when there is a crisis, there might not be change. So there is, see, so the necessary and sufficient condition rules apply here. So. In fact, I opened the book with this thing, with this thought which had been in my head that, I mean, so we are able to do, launch a Mars mission at a cost of what, less than what it cost Hollywood to produce gravity. We are able to do Kumbhela. We are able to conduct elections of 900 million people. And we are the largest, one of the largest space powers. We are a nuclear power. Uh, we, we, we uh, Indians sort of maintain uh, the technology end of over half the Fortune 500 companies. Uh, so what's what's the thing? Why, why aren't we able to deliver on the most basic things? And so you see, I've lived in Mumbai, I've lived in Bangalore, I've lived in Delhi, I've lived in Bang uh, Pune. Uh, and every city has its own kind of contour of public services. Uh, when you're in Mumbai, you are very blessed because, you know, everything is sort of in place and, you know, uh, uh, the electric grid is designed to island in Bombay off if there was a grid collapse. Uh, water supply is consistently maintained. But, and this was my thought because I had also covered the city municipal corporation and state government, so I knew that Bombay was special. But over a period of time, so I came to hear that suburbs didn't had power outages, water supply was an issue across the city. And so this thought kept coming back. And so I said, okay, so these are silent crises that I had mentioned actually in my first book, the uh, silent crisis. So I said, let's look at why this is happening and took quite a bit of research to sort of figure out any, I mean, so let's take health now, since we are still in the wake of the pandemic. India's first health report was commissioned by Florence Nightingale in 1850s. And you read that report, which came out five years later, it sounds like it was written in 2020. It has all the issues, the water, the sanitation, the availability of doctors, the availability of paramedics. You read the next big good report, Gore report, uh, Bore report, sorry. And that came out in 46. You read that everything it says is valid today. So Florence Nightingale says that make hygiene the centerpiece of your health policy. 1856. And we are still talking about Swachh Bharat. So the education policy is the same story. We, in, 
I mean, we had midday meal scheme, so we were able to enroll children. But the quality of education, the outcomes are really bad. Now it's getting worse because the people have realized that a private school education certifies you a sort of jump start, gives you a jump start in the job market or makes you better. People believe that private schools are better because government schools, I mean, 25% absenteeism, 25% vacancy. Half the teachers are not there. And so every government comes and has a story of how it's to be done. Take law and order. Bihar and Uttar Pradesh lead the tally in vacant police posts. Bihar and Uttar Pradesh are two states which desperately need law and order. One of the reasons nobody is investing there is the, the, the vulnerability, the optics of law and order. Water. We are still dealing with water as if we are a surplus nation. We are not. We have a population now that has to be managed. And we, we haven't had a real... So who uses the maximum water in India? Maximum water is used for agriculture. Next is industry and third is people. Nearly 75 to 80% of the water is used for agriculture. We haven't had a decent attempt at the new crop map in 70 years. Not one attempt. And therefore, we grow sugarcane in drought hit areas of Maharashtra, paddy in Haryana, in Punjab, where water is being mined. Whereas it should have been, it should be grown in the Gangetic Plains, in Chhattisgarh, in other places. We, we use cane, sugar cane to derive, I mean, we are the largest producers of sugar, but I mean, do we need to use sugar cane? Which is like a water intensive crop. Why not use sugar beet? These are questions that we have never applied. The second part is <clears throat> when it comes to pipe water, only 20% of India gets water in their homes. Can you imagine this? 70 years after independence, only 20% of India gets, 25% uh, now if you sort of add up some of the new additions. So what's the flaw there? We transferred the ownership of water and management of water from the communities to the government. So A, the management of water was nobody's responsibility. B, we thought that laying pipe from X to Z is the only way to deliver water. Now there are various ways to deliver water, portable water. The government of India now has a Jal uh, Shakti ministry. Uh, and the government has promised that they will deliver pipe water. To, they will connect every home with pipes. Now, this is where I worry. When they say I will connect with pipes, I don't know whether the water will flow through or not. So, and I think, again, they're making the same error of large project, piping, and all. Whereas... Every area has groundwater. Groundwater can be harnessed. We have membrane technosmo reverse osmosis technology. There are water ATMs functioning on, in the railway ministry, in various villages, philanthropic organizations. We have to harness private ideas to deliver these things. Uh, so the, 
thing that when I was writing the book, one of the things that, that struck me was over a period of time, India centralized every the centralized the power to solve every problem that it could not solve. And by centralizing that system, they made it worse because water, electricity, healthcare, security are all last mile issues, which is the first mile of governance. And they should be managed at the local government level. So 93, 94, we passed the Panchayat, uh, the 73rd, 4th Amendment to deliver rights to Panchayats and municipalities. State governments still don't transfer it. Then we talk about decentralization. In international forum, Rajesh, we always tell UN, WTO, World Bank, and us that we should, the world should not attempt one-size-fits-all solutions. And yet, within India, we try one-size-fits solutions. We have a uh, thing. So every time we centralize something, we make the problem worse. And I've been arguing this one-point agenda that I have is Let's decolonize governance. The center's stronghold over state governments, funds, functions, and the state government's stronghold and power over the next level of governance. And you, this is the one structural thing that big issue we have. The second, and this is something to do with people. And uh, so, I don't know how this has come through and I struggle with the answer for this uh, as to why people, when, when they're, so at every income level, those who have a voice, who can say something, find an option and shift to the option. So every time they exit, the case for somebody fighting for the, delivery of public services becomes weaker. And I often think, uh, and I've said this publicly, so I don't mind saying this again, is I think Indians sort of practice democracy once in five years for a few hours when they go to vote. The rest of the time they treat the government as a benign monarchy. So, okay, we voted these guys into place and let's see how they sort of pan out. And so yeah, at one level, there is everybody so caught up with their daily life that they do, they're unable to deal with the extra uh, obligation of being citizens or participants in the democracy. But a more important point, there is no forum left, whether in cities or states or in the national level, for a person with a concern to take his concern to a forum and have a public representative represent him on that cause. So MPs represent their, I mean, you know, members of parliament and MLAs are elected on the Representation of People Act. Uh, they're supposed to represent their people, their constituents, but they're always representing the parties that they elected on. And so there is this deficit of governance, deficit of representation. So deficit of governance is basically deficit of participation, deficit of representation. So how we bring this together is going to be critical for India. Uh, no country, Rajesh, in the world, no country can ca has come up without investing in human development. We speak so much about China, about it being authoritarian, blah, 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 and all that. 
but what does it say about the democracy that india is that an authoritarian totalitarian state a communist state like china beats india on every human development indicator every human development indicator i mean it's shocking how smaller countries are doing much better than india i mean you know if we take state wise thing some of the states are in sub saharan region sorry tell me i think no it's a great great point and uh, i think there's a lot of food for thought i think your book covers incredible ground i think it's path breaking in that sense in terms of what it Thank covers you, and and we've got a few minutes left and i want to take up one more theme uh, as we close out on because you've been a great watcher uh, uh and very perceptive through these last uh, decades and your books actually like i said earlier that's the story of india what happens next so what do you think is the next economy like so i think we i mean governments in india tend to be deluded uh that there is time to do things that is the grand delusion or that we are already doing things that is the grander delusion the worst is that we have already done it so so when i look at look at the future i mean here's where we are in post uh, the 9 months of the pandemic we know that technology has accelerated the adoption of technology we know that countries are choosing to automate at a rapid pace to reconfigure their supply chains we know that the investment and allocation of resources will be now governed by a new item called esg which is environment sustainability and uh, governance so this is what i call the new uh, currency for you to get money new qualification that you need to have uh, some commentators have also said that this is this could be the new apartheid in the world of finance but allocation of capital how it comes to india is going to be very critical okay so so there are three parts a there is a demographic story which is the west is aging countries which will add the most number of people are poor in resource and poor in governance countries which will shrink in population have the resources to replace human beings with automation now you have demography you have technology and layer on top of that climate climate change is not something that is happening at the pole you know it's happening everywhere i mean you know so every year there's a rising sea level every year we know extreme weather we know india's monsoon for instance has shifted by a month we know it ends later and begins later we know it's severe in its burst we know we can't harness that water what are we doing about it okay a climate b demographic change and the retrenchment of human beings by automation digitization is visible people who you who could get jobs in as clerks in banks know that bank jobs are limited because atms have replaced replaced tellers now atms are being replaced by apps 
Now apps might be replaced by something else. So we don't know where, where, where this is headed. Okay. So what are the skills that we require to reconfigure our economy? And here's an interesting thing, and uh, I'll be happy if somebody provides me with the answer. On any, every year I try to find this, how many graduates passed out of colleges in India? So you get the number for the technical colleges, but you get an approximation for all the other colleges. So we produce 52 or 56,000 MBBS graduates, medical graduates. We produce about three lakh engineers. We produce X number of chartered accountants, but we don't know how many graduates in science we produce. We don't know how many diploma holders we produce. We don't know how many commerce graduates. There is no number. So here's the beginning of the skill conundrum. If you don't know how many graduate, what are the skill levels? How are you going to skill them for the next economy? People who say that technology will not replace human beings, but actually is complementary, must recognize that there is an element of inverse Luddite thinking in that. Technology will retrench people. It may create jobs elsewhere, but are your people ready for those jobs? Is your system ready for the jobs? For instance, climate change and the re need to sort of shrink the fossil fuel economy means India must shrink its footprint of usage of coal. Now, coal India employs 270,000 people. What are you going to do about that? Do we have an income support scheme? Do we have an alternate uh, employment scheme? What do we have ready for that? So the public policy is yet to evolve on that. It's yet to evolve on climate. So we sort of think that climate is means let's park four or five more solar projects. I mean, okay, so it helps the uh, footprint of which form of electricity you use, but you're still 40% on coal. The second part is that solar also consumes a lot of space. A solar power project, one megawatt is to five acres or something is the ratio, okay? India is a land constrained country. So we have to think about this differently. So can we say have, so we have national highways, those island space in national highways, why not have lease that space between the two sides of two lanes of the national highway to people who want to set up solar plants and have a high mass solar. I've explained this three times to different people in government, it's not gone through as yet. Either I'm a bad communicator or they're bad listeners. I don't know which one is the truth. We have the largest coastline over 7,000 kilometers of border and coastal. So what are we doing about that coastline? Why can't we have power projects on barrage? Why can't we have windmills, offshore windmills? Why aren't we thinking? Okay, they might, to be frank, all of these have issues of cost and economics and all. But I only wish that we discuss these things much more robustly than we discuss love jihad and stuff like that. I mean, we have so much time for what's happening, what is not happening, but very little time for what is happening. I think very well, very well put Shankar, I think. And these are the questions which are, I think, going to define 
the uh, the decade and the next you know probably 20 30 years for the young population that india is i mean these are probably the best years for india to move from the penury that you talked about earlier to yeah. prosperity uh, but it's been a it's been a fascinating conversation i think uh, uh, so much food for thought and i think I'm, I'm eagerly looking forward to your new book and i think the one good thing which you always of course have done is not just lay out the problems but give innovative solutions backed by by backed by data and example hey Bab, rajesh i am a bombay wala i think of the solution first <laughs> <laughs> it's been a great conversation i think it was a wonderful tour through india's own history i, I think through your writings and uh, uh, i think uh, over to you janith what do you think I think it's interesting, and when I'm speaking to Shankar, and I'm looking at some of our hippo brains who've been on our on our uh, shows before, and Akhilesh who argues about the private cost of public failure, or Ajaysha who explained that we have a small window for uh, to take our demographic dividend and use it for better. I think he said, Rajesh, if I'm mis- if I'm not mistaken, we have till 2035 uh, before we probably end up wasting it. Or Ramesh. who talks about taking a lot of people out of poverty by getting them into skilled uh, manufacturing or last week shruti who talks about why it is all the central planning has altered the very basic fabric of the constitution that stops us from doing any of this and now we have shankar who's talking about ye sab chodo all you need is a bloody crisis and if you have a crisis that is good enough we have all the answers and if you have the crisis indian politicians will figure out what to do like they have done in the past and by an accidental problem or some level of politics we got aadhar because the the answer was in some way known to us we got probably accidentally i don't know how the right person for the right job and today you have something that can give us a way a huge way to take it forward and finally about the gated republic where it probably brings home to fact that people like you and me rajesh or even i would argue shankar that we live in cities we have access to a lot of facilities we don't really understand or value the role of government where i think some of our hippo brains in the past have argued that the role of the government is to ensure a far equitable distribution and not just necessarily rely that the private enterprise will ensure distribution for what essentially the government wants i think shankar helps us understand a lot of these nuances shankar helps us open our eyes to all of it thank you guys thank you shankar for being a great um, uh, author columnist and a speaker right now and a guest on hippobrain and thank you thank for being you. with us it's a privilege to be a hippobrain <laughs> thank you shankar and you. Uh, uh, to all our viewers and listeners to subscribe to us you can press uh, subscribe and you get informed of all these great brilliant hippobrain conversations that we are having and you can get us on pod, on any of your podcast channels thanks a lot do see us again you.